All right, good morning. You can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8 is where we're looking at uh, this morning. And we'll read it here in in just a moment. Revelation 8. Revelation 8 reads, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth, And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And the third of the earth was burned up, and the third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on the on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle with a loud voice, it cried with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. All right, so you've got all the answers and are ready, right? Piece of cake. It's no problem. Can't wait for all your good stuff. Yeah, really neat pictures that happen here in the in 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 chapter eight as this this unfolds. So uh, as we move into chapter eight, remind me about what let's summarize chapter seven, and that'll make sure we've kind of got that firmly planted in our minds so we can see what this transition is as we're coming into uh, this eighth chapter. So what happened in chapter seven? Let's kind of put some of the big pieces to, together, Jim. All of God's people have been counted and sealed for him, saved for him okay. before the coming of Christ. Good. So primary message of chapter seven was we have the people of God, the servants of God, they all need to be sealed. Chapter 6 revealed all of the seals being opened, which were describing first partial judgments as you saw a fourth of things. And then you see uh, this depiction of a full judgment where the sun is darkened, the moon's not giving its light, the sky's rolling up like a scroll, all of that. But before that can happen, the people of God are being sealed before these judgments then are are unleashed. So chapter 7 uh, gives a, a picture of these where we able to figure out based on chapter seven uh, who are these people particularly and it's details particularly at the end of the chapter who died for Christ. okay these are the people who have who have died for the cause of Christ they are described as coming through the great tribulation they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb we also see them 
uh, in verses 9 and 10, they are before the throne of God. And, and so you have uh, a picture of these who have suffered for the cause of Christ. They've died for the cause of Christ. And yet, though they die physically, here they are in the presence of God. So now I want you just to kind of visualize this throne scene. What is striking about now the first verse of, of chapter 8? Now, why would that be a big deal? It's been pretty noisy, right? Everything in, in the book has shown, especially in chapter 4, uh, this whole throne room scene. Is there any time during this throne room scene that there's silence that you observe? Yeah. No? When if you remember what you saw in, in, in chapter 4 is day and night, you have these four living creatures and it says... They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord uh, God Almighty who is, who was, and who is to come. And it says whenever they do that, the 24 elders, they cast their crowns and then they're saying, worthy are you, O Lord, or God, to receive glory, honor, and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So there's this constant action and constant noise going on. And then for after all of that to happen, for John to say, now there's silence. And, and how long is the silence? Half an hour. You all can't even do 10 seconds. You all can't even bear 10 seconds. 30 minutes. Just let silence sit for 30 minutes. Just imagine that throne room scene and it all just goes hush. What do you think that's trying to communicate? Yeah, something's going down, right? <laughs> all of this action, all of a sudden, just comes to a screeching halt. And every, I mean, it puts you in anticipation. You all are like looking at me like, what, what, what's going to happen? Something, something's going to happen, right? Do, do something, right? That, that's what, what you have setting up there, Julie. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, of a natural reading, you get the sense this is the calm before the storm. Something's about to happen. The Old Testament prophets do the same thing where you have pictures of calls of silence because God is about to do something. Habakkuk is a great one where you have the, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Well, why? Well, because he's about to do something. Habakkuk 3 reveals here's all that God is going to accomplish. Zephaniah and Zechariah do the same thing. 
Silence has a depiction of something big is just about to happen. And so to read the silence really sets everybody's attention back to the throne room to really pay attention to God is about to act uh, on, on behalf of, of his, his people. So really, really powerful picture with that. Um, also, just as an important reminder, and, and, and I think Julie kind of put her finger on it here as well, is, is we're now going to get the details of, of these events. If you think about chapter 6, those six seals we just kind of blew through. You know, it's, it's a very fast summary of events. If you figure in one chapter, six seals is, is like, boom, right, right over it. And I noted to you that I believe that is overviewing the big idea. Sometimes it's, it's hard for us because we want to read stories in such a linear fashion. But if you think about reading the prophets of God, do they write their prophecy strictly in a linear fashion? You know, that chapter 9 story always comes after chapter 8, and chapter 30's story always comes after chapter 4. No, the prophecies are always doubling back and exploring more, and here's more about what that looks like, and here's more about what's going to happen. So when we saw in the first three verses of Revelation 1 that we're told this is prophecy, we shouldn't think that we just have to go straight line well, all the events of chapter 8 must have happened after chapter 6, and 9 must have happened. It doesn't have to work that way because God's prophecies never work that way. They're always doubling back and giving more details. The same thing is happening here that I think chapter 6 was your big overview and big idea. Chapter 7 told us, but before we can have judgments, we need the servants of God to be protected and sealed and, and identified and now we're going to get the, the details. This, this, this seventh seal, verse 1, opens. And what is it ultimately revealing if you were to summarize the, the, the seventh seal? What, is, what keeps popping out? Seven what? <clears throat> Seven trumpets now uh, arrive. And so I don't want you to think that, okay, well, now that I'm at the end of the seventh seal, these seven trumpets must be after that. But it's now explaining and exploring, giving the details of the things that were given in, in short overview of the prior two chapters. So I just got get a, a feel of that, because I know if for our society, we don't ever tell stories in circles, typically. We have to go straight forward. <laughs> in fact, we even find it amusing when you watch something and it gives you the end at the beginning and we're like, what? <laughs> then you have to watch the next 40 minutes or whatever it is to go, oh, okay, now I understand how we got to that point. Uh, but the prophets do that all the time. I mean, you think about Isaiah 2 is already messianic prophesying the mountain of the Lord. Well, he's got 66 chapters of stuff. He's not going linear at all. <laughs> he's already jumping to the end and saying, look at this. Well, let me tell you how we all got there. And he's going to lay it all out. So I just want you to feel comfortable with the book of Revelation, having the ability to go back and double down and talk more and give more details because the prophets do that all, all the time. Okay. Uh, questions about that so far? And like I said, only in verse one thus far, but we'll kind of roll forward. But feel good about the framework of this. <clears throat> okay, uh, it was also noted that you see in uh, verse 2 uh, and in verse 3, we have 
this altar with golden incense and much, or golden censer with much incense to offer the prayers of all the saints that are uh, around on the golden altar before the throne. So that that's a really neat picture that's given. You've seen that image before back in chapter five, where you saw that before this throne room scene of God, that the, the prayers of the saints are rising up like the smoke of incense before the altar of God. Uh, and it's not the purview of the study, but I do hope you'll think about prayer like that. Because that's a really great visual. To really think of your prayers just rising up and, and moving into the very throne room of God. And they're, they're pictured all just around the throne as God is able to receive all of that. Um, the Old Testament had a visual of that, right? You'll notice that this is uh, the altar of incense that is pictured. Where Do you remember where that was when you came to the tabernacle, where that was located and its function and purpose? Okay. Yeah, it, it's, it's described in the holy place and described just outside the curtain of the holy place. It was kind of unusual. It's kind of counted as belonging as part of the sacred things of the holy of holies, yet... It sat just outside because you had to get the incense burning because what were you going to do? Why, what was its function? The smoke needed to go where? Into that holy of holies before the priest could go in there on the day of atonement, right? That had to just fill with all that smoke. So you're using that visual from the tabernacle here. Uh, and you might remember the writer of Hebrews makes an argument about how everything in the tabernacle was just an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. Okay, well, here you go. <laughs> here's here's the smoke of the, which is depicting the, the prayers of God's people all just rising up and filling his throne room all around. Uh, and just think about what have we have seen in the book of Revelation so far. What has been the prayer? What has been the primary concern? What has been talked about in this book? How long, How long right? Uh, that, that goes back to the fifth seal of chapter six is that you have seen the, 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 the saints under the altar crying out, how long until you avenge? How long until you do something? Uh, and as Julie brought out, the answer was going to be to wait a little while, but then something was going to happen. The, the little while being more of your brethren were going to be killed uh, for the cause of Christ. So there is a waiting period. There's going to be time. But you're getting a picture here that one, God is receiving the prayers of the saints. He's hearing them. He, 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 he's hearing how long, how long, how long. And when you look then at verses four and five, what's what's God's answer? Notice there's not words, right? But is there a response? Okay, so we've got smoke. We've got uh, the angel taking the censer filled with fire, verse five, from the altar, throwing it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What should be the thought process of hearing that God's response is earthquake, lightning, fire, thunder? Judgment. It's just going to be calm. and No, right? It, it, you, have, you immediately get judgment imagery, right? God is responding to the prayers. The people are saying how long God is now acting in judgment. That would be the natural reading of that. It's not... 
and the, and the waters are calm and serene and people were relaxed. No, it, it's fire thrown to the earth. It is reminiscent of Mount Sinai, isn't it? With the earthquake and the fire and the lightning. And it's just, here, here's, here's God. And, and when he responds, it is a devastating response. So all these first five verses have shown to us now is God is acting in judgment in response to the prayers of the people. Is that a, a fair set up for what we're about to read. That's that's all that seems to be going on is we're ready for judgment. There's silence for half an hour. We're just waiting. And then the prayers are there before God. And he hears the prayers. And now here comes the judgments. I think in some of that silence, the people are anticipating the judgment. I think that God's pausing because he knows what this means. Mm-hmm. When he lays this judgment out, you know, kind of it took Noah a hundred years right. to build that ark, not because God couldn't have him build it the next day or provide. But what's going to yep. the gravity of this is weighing on the Lord. Yep. He doesn't want any worship. He doesn't want any. Yep. He wants to reflect on the gravity of what's going to happen. Sure. It is consistent with the picture of God's long suffering and patience and just waiting and waiting and waiting until finally judgment has to happen. God has to act. Something has to be done. But a long time has gone on with that. And I believe that is absolutely depicted. Uh, in verses uh, six through six through thirteen, as you have these four trumpets now that are sounded uh, back to back to back, um, if you were to summarize, what are the things that are that are ultimately described as being harmed? Various aspects of creation, right? You, you notice that. Um, you have in verse seven, a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. All the green grasses burned up. Great mountain burning with fire is thrown into the sea and a third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships are destroyed. We have a great star falling in verse 10. A third of the, on a third of the rivers And on the springs of water, a third of the waters became wormwood and many died. And then verse 12, fourth angel, we have a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining, likewise a third of the night. So you're just getting all these images of a a, a very vast judgment of all the different parts of creation, right? It's just trees, it's water, it's... Mountains, it's sun, moon, stars. It seems like everything is ultimately getting a, an impact from the event that's happening. Julie? I think the reason why for me this goes back to Revelation 6 and the saints and the mother God is because, you know, I, I close my eyes and I think about the vision here. You know, we have these seven angels and then we just discussed, you know, uh, verse 3, this is, it, it's another angel. So I feel like I, I see these seven angels just kind of waiting there angel here and he's offering this incense up you know and it's going up to God and then in verse 6 you have this seventh angel here or you have the first angel blowing his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and I can't help but think that this mixture of blood is also that great response okay. to God saying you know this judgment is happening again there's something there's something significant about that, certainly. Um, in fact, as you listen to some of the pictures that are given here, does it remind you of any prior judgment in those elements? Yeah. 
Egypt, doesn't it? It does have a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities uh, to the Egyptian plagues where you have the, the sea becoming blood and you have the fire coming down, hail mixed with fire. Well, that's what, what you had as well. There are a lot of these aspects that you're like, ah, and I hope that it's like cluing you in a little bit. This is the language of national judgment, isn't it? This is what God does when he's, when he's judging a people. Uh, Debbie? I just noticed, though, uh, the other night when we were studying Zechariah, uh, Zechariah Same kind of idea, right? Let's talk about that for a minute because it is interesting to notice what is, how much is struck in almost all of the images. A, a, a third, right? So I hope you're getting a sense that when you're reading these fractions, there is a, a, a partial judgment happening, like a winnowing happening because Zechariah does the same thing. Two-thirds are wiped out and and one-third is left and is purified and becomes the remnant in Zechariah 13. Ezekiel liked this one. You might remember he has to cut the hairs of his beard and hair and then he starts separating them into thirds and one of them he's doing with a sword, you know, and then another one he's casting to the wind and he's doing the same kind of visuals of what is happening with these are these these judgment warnings that, that, that are being given. Since we saw that in chapter 6, or, well, yeah, chapter 6 with those seals, there were fractions there. And then once the fractions kind of expire, you move to, uh, here's a totality of judgment. And I want you to see the same thing here. First four trumpets do the exact same thing as those first four seals. There's a fraction being given. There's uh, a, a judgment that's being decreed. And we're get, when we get to chapter 9, it's going to explain... God was seeking repentance. God is trying to use these events of thirds to get the people to repent. Now, let's talk about this for a minute because this is where stuff gets really tricky. So, should either in the past, or should I even say in the future, should we expect there to only be one-third of the sun that struck and one third of the moon and one third of the star so that we only have one third of the light uh, and one third of the night. Well, why not? Don't you believe in the Bible? It says it right there. I just read it to you. It says a third. So we're only going to get two thirds of sunlight. You better get your tan now. It's not going to be as strong in the future. The sunblock company is going to be out of business because we're going to lose a third. Yeah, y'all are like, no, but you don't have an answer. <laughs> symbolic. Okay. S- symbolic. And, and I, I want us to just get a feel that we, we covered a lot of these, these texts. And if we need to go back over some of them again, I've got, I will go over one of them. But I'm happy to go back over others in the list. But we went through Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel back in chapter 6 and noted same kind of language, right? When you have trees and water and earth being destroyed or burnt up, when you have sun is uh, darkened, the moon doesn't give its light, stars fall from the sky, skies rolled up like a scroll. 
You can find all of that same language in all of these passages up there. And what we noted was, if you remember, when we were looking at Isaiah, sometimes like in chapter 13, he was talking about Babylon. But he said, the the sun and the stars are gone. Sometimes he was talking about Edom and used the same imagery of the skies are rolled up. Sometimes he was talking about Jerusalem, like in Isaiah 2, and using the same idea. Well, that's all just wiped out and gone. So... I, I, what I, the big thing I want you to get a sense of is just because you read language that says, well, the earth is destroyed and the trees are gone and the sun and the stars are gone and all that doesn't mean that the earth and the sun and the sky is actually gone. Because that's how God talked when he spoke to nations about judgment. And do you remember the shorthand I said that we would use when we read, if the sun is darkened and the moon is not given its light and you're talking to a nation, what should they think? Lights out. You're done. You don't have a sun anymore. You don't have stars anymore. You're you're gone. You're off the map. It is time for Babylon to fall is what Isaiah was talking about. It was time for Edom to fall as Isaiah talks about. It was time for Jerusalem to be carried into Babylonian captivity as Isaiah talks about. Joel does the same thing and we should be very comfortable with that language. Peter quotes Joel 2 which says the very same thing. (laughs) It says that it's the sun and stars and moon is all turning to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He's doing the same thing. And Joel wasn't talking about the end of the world either. He was talking about there was a present judgment that was about to come upon a nation. Which is why Peter stands up in Acts 2. And who would be his audience in Acts 2? Jews. Jews, And saying, watch out. (laughs) Jesus warned this. And you need to repent before the great and terrifying day of the Lord comes. Now, I'll add one new one that we did talk about last time, and then I'll field your questions with this. The new one that I added is Luke 21, 20 through 32. I'll put it on the screen, but if you want to look at it in your Bibles, you can as well. Luke 21. And I want you to just notice that it is very clear in Luke 21, verse 20, and I highlighted it. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Okay, so first question on the quiz, who is Jesus talking about? (laughs) Jerusalem, right? This is a Jerusalem destruction text. That's what he's describing right here. But I want you to listen to its totality uh, that is described. That when you read it, if you forget that he said Jerusalem, it sounds very end of the world like. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then those who are in in Judea flee to the mountains let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out of the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Now, can I pause there for a minute? I said something about Daniel's prophecies that still had to happen, right? And I said, here's one of them. Daniel talked about that you had the anointed one being cut off and the desolation of the sanctuary. And here Jesus, as Luke records it, says the same thing. There are things that still had to be fulfilled, and this is one of them. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Verse 23, alas for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth. 
Well, I thought we were talking about Jerusalem. Well, notice the language. Everybody. This is a, this is a global problem is the way it's described. And wrath against this people. But notice he hasn't left the idea. Then they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the Gentile, times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now watch the very next sentence. He just said we're still talking about Jerusalem, right? And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on, on the world. And the powers of the heaven will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. Boy, that just sounds like we just made a left turn at Albuquerque right there, right? It was like you were just talking about Jerusalem back in verse 24. But then the very next line is sun, moon, stars, distress on the earth, fear coming on the world, powers of the heavens shaken, Son of Man coming in the clouds. And that's why everybody goes, whoa, 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 this is the end of the world. No, stay. Where did he say he was talking about? He said twice, Jerusalem. And you keep going. When these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And then he tells a parable. Here's a story to confirm my idea. Look at the fig tree and all, and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you will see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. Now watch what he, how he ends this. So also, so when you see these things taking place, you will know the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So here's why I want to underscore. That, that's, he, Jesus spoke to those people... And said, your generation will not pass away until, now let me reverse, until signs of sun, moon, stars coming on the world, earth distress, powers in the heavens shaken, and the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Right? So early on I said, this is why we can't read this terminology and immediately default into end of the world. That's what so many books do. End of the world, end of the world, end of the world. Hold on. God loves talking like this. <laughs> he used the same language to Jerusalem for Babylon in Isaiah. He used the same language to refer to uh, the king of Babylon and how he was going to fall. He used it in terms of Edom. He used it in terms of Jerusalem again a second time in, in the first century. That This generation would not pass away until all those things would take place. So when we read this, I think this is probably one of the hardest things to do. So let me help you through it if I can answer any questions. Verses 7 through 13 of Revelation 8 sound like a global end-of-the-world judgment. Waters, trees, earth, grass, Sun, moon, stars, mountains. And there is nothing here yet to tell you, okay, well, we must be talking about the end of the world because God talks like that all the time. Okay? All right. Questions, maybe. What does it look 21 
it's, it's basically the same conversation that Matthew 24. That's right. The problem is he, he was asked three different questions. Yeah. Matthew 24 has a more expansive answer over there. Mm-hmm. And, and he kind of, to me, from what I read there, he, he flows from one to the other of those answers. Yeah. You have to be careful where, where, which question he's talking about. Right. And, and we need to talk about Matthew 24, and we will. I'm linking you with Matthew, with Luke 21. But I do want you to see something here. Notice that when he was describing the, the destruction of Jerusalem here in verse 27, what was it also called? The Son of Man coming. I think that's important to see. Is that you get pictures of Jesus saying, I'm coming. And his coming is not always talking about the second coming. Now, here's my shorthand, easy place to find that. Go over to Matthew. And see if I can remember this off the top of my head. I think it's 26. Matthew 26, from verse 57 to verse 68, you have Jesus before Caiaphas. Let's start in verse 62. Matthew 26, 62. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Now look at verse 64. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So here's my simple question. Did Caiaphas see that? Because Jesus just said he would. Or was he mistaken? See, you only have two options there. (laughs) Either Jesus thought he was coming in the clouds and with the power of the right hand of God within the lifetime of Caiaphas in that first century and was wrong. I don't find that a tenable answer. (laughs) Or our definition of the Son of Man coming in the clouds is incorrect if we only see it as the second coming of Christ. That it must have another meaning, must have another idea. So that's why when we've gone through this, I said, when Jesus talks about his coming, lop off the phrase at the end of time. It could be, but context has to tell you what coming he's talking about because here's a coming. Who is he coming against in Luke 21? Jerusalem's our context. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and and again, I'll roll roll forward in case you think he changed topics. Remember what he says here at, at the end. Same thing he told Caiaphas. 
that first century generation was going to see it happen, right? So his coming can't only mean end of time, end of the world, shutdown of all things. And that's why the vast majority of the books really go sideways and all over the place with the book of Revelation, because the coming of Jesus simply means judgment. Somebody is getting wiped out. And it could be the whole earth. We, we read that he's going to do that, not denying a second coming. First Thessalonians 4 and 5 for sure. But every, every time he says he's coming doesn't mean it's always talking about the end. And I think this is a really important text with that. So, And again, I want you to see when he talks about his coming, notice though we said back here, very sentence before, we're talking about Jerusalem. He also calls it a distress upon the whole earth. He also calls it sun, moon, and stars, and earth distressed. Powers of heaven shaken. So if there's anything I can do for you in the study of Revelation, it will be to try to break apart the idea that when the scriptures start talking about sun, moon, and stars falling from the sky, the sun darkened and the moon turning to blood and sky rolled up like a scroll. That must be the end of the world. If I can get that off of you, I will have a great victory. (laughs) Because it is all over the scriptures. It's used that way. Isaiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Joel, Matthew, Luke. It's everywhere where God talks like that in describing a nation's fall. All right, so that gives me like some time to just roam the room off with hands that you all had. There was a bunch, and now you all retracted. You all got scared. All right, let me go ahead. I just wanted to say that like sometimes when we say to somebody, you'll see something. It doesn't mean you're going to see it with your okay. eyes. It means you're going to understand. Sure. You know, you say to somebody, well, you'll see. Right. Sure. Now, you're going to have an understanding of what I mean by, by all of this. No, no doubt about that. Something had to happen in Caiaphas' lifetime for that to be true. And for this, same thing. Jerusalem is going to fall, and that's being described as the coming of the Son of Man. Now, if I can make this help a little bit better... In Daniel 7, you saw that when Jesus comes to the Ancient of Days and takes his seat and it says he was given all glory, power, dominion, rule, and authority, right? (laughs) Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is the very same terminology. He is coming like the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days. Same phrase, same language, coming in the clouds. And he's subjecting nations to him under his feet. So is Jerusalem a rebellious nation that needs to be judged for its sins? Yeah. So I'm coming against you. But that's true of every nation. Every nation that stands against God is ultimately going to be put under the feet of Christ as he reigns on the throne now and is subjugating them just like 1 Corinthians 15 says. So... Jerusalem needs it. We talked about the Roman Empire is going to be persecuting Christians. They're going to have to be subjected. 
Every nation is going to be put under under his feet. That is him coming in the clouds. He's coming and keeps coming and keeps coming as he judges and judges and judges and judges. And then what's the last enemy that has to be put under his feet according to 1 Corinthians 15? Death. Okay. He's taking all the enemies and coming against them and putting them under his feet. Mike, you had a question? And one of the things I think, I'm glad you bring that up, because sometimes what people will say is, well, what does the whole world care about the destruction of Jerusalem? All right, I'll I'll play ignorant too and go, I don't know. I've got answers, but let me just say, I don't know. But Jesus sure seemed to think it was a, a worldwide issue. What is coming on the world is the, the phrase he used. He talked that way. That's the term he, he pictured. He described it as the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars. So we just have to be okay with that. Now, I think there's a lot of reasons why that would be important outside of the time for all the questions that you all have that I want to cover. But I just want you to see we shouldn't just, you know, sit there and go, what does anybody care? Well, Jesus thought it was valuable to the whole earth to talk about what was what was going to go on. Well, and I think without the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, it's going to be hard for Christianity to move forward seeing Jesus as the temple. Because they that was not just the destruction of the temple, but they lost all right. of their lineages and all of their generational sure. information. They can't have priests. They can't have king lines anymore. It ended all with that. And that did affect the entire world. Yeah, this is going to really ultimately create the key separation between Jews and Gentiles that in the first century was pretty well kind of merged and not really great attention paid between the distinction. And that was now going to become much more crystallized as we move to the back end of the first century. Stan? That's right. Because it becomes personal and he threatens. That's exactly right. Because Jesus is the one walking around saying, it's over. It's over for you. It's it's done. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day because we're going to get pretty soon in our Matthew study where Jesus is going to ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? Have you ever thought about how curious it is that some people said Jeremiah? Why Jeremiah? What's Jeremiah running around saying? (laughs) What's his message? His message is total destruction of of nation and temple, right? I mean, what else would be the connector to Jeremiah? (laughs) Like, why would you say he's Jeremiah? Well, I bet their message sounded pretty similar. End of nation, end of temple. And yeah, Jesus is one of the strongest in talking that way. But I I do just hope that it's, it's, it's just resonating with you. Great distress upon the earth. Just just let that be okay. (laughs) God can say it's all the earth, all the grass and trees and waters and all of that and still be zeroing in on only a nation. Charlotte. The sad, sad to me, saddest thing is nobody repented. I mean, Jesus walked here on earth. Yep. They killed him. 
Yep. The same thing we read further in Revelation. That's right. God gave the time for repentance yeah. and nobody did. That's right. Uh, if you think about what is, what Stephen's primary point, you all are stubborn, this temple's going to burn, and they killed him for it. It was the same proclamation. And rather than repentance of, oh no, what should we do? Like in Acts 2, the leaders stop up their ears and say, we're going to kill you for that, which is what Jesus is. is. If, if we kept reading, after Jesus said, you're going to see me coming in the clouds at the right hand of the power, Caiaphas tears his robes and say, that's all we need. That was all we needed. Crucify him. We're taking him out. Send him off to Pilate. He's done. That was it. You spoke against the temple. You blaspheme God. You're done. You're absolutely done. So I mean, it was a very big deal. All right, Julie. So my comment actually came right after Debbie's comment. Um, when I was looking at Matthew 26, not only did it say they would see him coming in the clouds, but it said that they would see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Now, mm-hmm. they weren't physically going to see that, even yeah. though we know he's at the right hand of God. And right. And will bow and everyone's going to will confess. So I think it was more of just it happened. Yeah. This is what's going to happen. And regardless if we see him coming in the cloud or not, he's Lord, he's yeah. ruler, he's, 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 he's done it all, he is at the right hand of God, he Good. is going to come in power. And I don't know if that pronoun you even referred to yeah. just you, because I'm part of that you. I'm also going to, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, when we think about the right hand of God, it's, it's an absolute, that's right. where he is. So good. So let's, let's, so we're 10 15. So the last thing I can say then, and then write down there your questions and bring it back next week. So again, don't read the image literally. Caiaphas was going to see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. That is a proclamation of authority and power. Here's your, Caiaphas, you're going to see, you're going to know. That I have authority and the power that I am proclaiming to you. Well, how's he going to know that? Well, you could argue resurrection for sure. But how's he going to be vindicated except he walked around telling them with all kinds of parables. Think about all the different parables about you all are getting thrown out of the vineyard, folks. (laughs) You all are done. It's over. Big tree cursed, nation is done, temple's going to be destroyed. And when it happened, when it happened, then you would know. And nobody repented. How do you know Jesus is on the throne? Because the temple got bulldozed, just like he said. You saw him come in the clouds at the right hand of God when he wiped out Jerusalem. You saw him come in the clouds at the right hand of God when Rome fell. You see that every single time a nation falls, that's God's hand saying, I'm in charge, Psalm 2, bow the knee, or the same happens to you too. That's what he's telling Caiaphas. That's that message. You're going to know, you're going to see, you're going to be alive when it all happens. So it's a very powerful message. All right, we're out of time. We'll pick up here next week. Bring your questions. Happy to talk more about Revelation 8, and then we can move on to chapter 9. 13-minute break. Reconvene at 1030. Thank you, everybody.